Good. So um, what that means is that last Sunday you had my outline in the sermon notes and then I didn't preach it. Uh, so the, the nerds in the room, and those are my people, went home and, and read the scriptures and tried to guess what I was going to say. So uh, you're near and dear to my heart. Uh, the very same outline appears in your sermon notes today. And here's what was going to happen last week. But uh, I'm just going to talk about it this week because I think this is a good word for us. Starting, uh, you know, the, the Advent season, uh, among many things, uh, one of the images that's always in the forefront of my mind is the image of the nativity scene. Uh, you have them in your homes, probably, maybe on the mantle or in a favorite place in, in, in the corner uh, of the house with the rest of the Christmas decor. You see them in various places around town. You see images of the nativity uh, in, in places. You visit somebody's house, they have a nativity scene. Everyone is a little bit different, but they all represent the same thing. So I, I want you to imagine in your mind's eye the nativity scene. Maybe it's it's yours. Maybe it's your favorite one. Maybe it's just kind of this idea of what the ideal nativity scene looks like to you. But imagine it for a moment in your mind's eye. It, of course, has the baby Jesus in the middle, doesn't it? Lying there. Can you picture him in, in the manger? Uh, and he's surrounded by Mary and Joseph. I think those three characters, even if you have no other characters, those three characters like that, you've got a nativity scene. Like, that's good enough. Now, we have bigger nativity scenes than that. This is where you start getting creative, right? You can have shepherds. Some nativity scenes just have one shepherd. Uh, the Bible's very clear, shepherds plural. We don't know how many, but some of the bigger nativity scenes have a, a, a small collection of shepherds, perhaps an army of shepherds. Sometimes the nativity scene, they bring their sheep. Uh, they have some you know, animals with them. Maybe the cattle are lowing. In the background, you know what I'm saying? There could be other animals there. I saw one with a duck once, which I feel is a nice addition to the nativity scene. Often in the nativity scene, you'll see the wise men coming uh, with three. Now the nerds in the room will quickly say, well, we don't know that there were three wise men. We just know that there were three presents. If they're anything like me, they like to pitch in together and go in together. So maybe there were more than three wise men. We don't really know, but the wise men were there. And then very often, the nativity scene will also include an angel kind of perched on the rooftop of the stable. My Aunt Rita had a nativity scene that had even more than that. She had the entire town of Bethlehem on her mantle. I think if you look closely, you could find a CVS on the corner. There was like just everything was there. Now, there's some details that I think those of us that have read scripture uh, and, and noticed, noticed that our, our traditional picture of the nativity scene takes a little liberty, doesn't it? It takes a little bit liberty um, because the angel the, the scripture never says the angel was at the manger. The angel met the shepherds out in the fields, right? The, the scripture never says that the angel was there at the manger. Um, many of you I know know that the wise men didn't make it that night. You know, wise people come late to parties. And that's what happened at the first Christmas. The wise men didn't make it there that night. So their inclusion in the nativity scene is a little bit, uh, you know, poetic license when, when we include them. They weren't there that night. So there's, there's all kinds of different characters that maybe they were there, maybe they weren't there. We don't know how many of these guys, how many, but it's the image that counts, isn't it? It's the image. It reminds us 
of the advent, the arrival of, of Christ. Now, the irony, I think, is that while there are several characters in that nativity scene that you've just pictured, that if we were going to get really, really historically accurate here, might not have actually been at the side of the manger on night number one. You know, they might not have actually been there, you know, exactly at that minute. Um, the irony, I think, is that there is one character that we know for sure was there that night, and he, like, never shows. I've never seen him in a nativity scene. And no, I'm not talking about the little drummer boy. That's, that's not in the Bible at all. That, that has nothing to do with, with anything. There is one character, though, who we know was present the night Jesus was born, and yet I never see him in a nativity scene, and it's the Holy Spirit. Well, for obvious reasons. I mean, it would hard, be hard to make a little statue of the Holy Spirit. I don't know how you would even begin to do that. But can we just begin with that premise? The Holy Spirit was present the night Jesus was born. And that's where we're going to live here for, for the next couple of weeks. We're going to talk about the role of the Holy Spirit. We see uh, the title that I've chosen for this series, uh, The Spirit of Christmas, with a capital S. It's not the Spirit of Christmas. It's the Spirit of Christmas, the Holy Spirit and his role in the Christmas story. And today, in particular, I want to begin by rewinding the timeline before, even several hundred years before the appearance of Christ, before that first Christmas. And I want to talk about the Spirit who promises. Do we know that's what the Holy Spirit does? It's the Spirit who promises. And it's in His promise that we begin to explore His role in the Advent, His, his place in the Nativity scene. The songs that we sang this morning echo that sense that the ancients must have had hundreds of years before the appearance of Jesus. This sense of waiting for his arrival. Every song that we sang this morning spoke to that at some level. We began with my coughing fit in the middle of a song that says, you'll come, you'll come, you'll come. We sang, King of Heaven, come now. We sang, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. And we ended our worship time and music this morning by singing, come Lord Jesus, come. There's this sense of longing that we have for the appearance of Jesus. Now you and I live in an era when, when we await the fulfillment of God's promises about a second arrival, a second advent. We've seen the first one. And so we feel like through the rearview mirror of history, we understand, we know, okay, it's Jesus and he came to a manger, not a cane. We can, we can tell all of that, but we no less than they are still waiting. We are still crying out, come Lord Jesus, come, because there's an advent yet to happen. We have the same desire in our hearts, don't we? We have the same longing for his appearance. We have the same parts of our bellies that cry out, God, is the time fully accomplished? Is it now? Would you come quickly, Lord Jesus? But our spiritual ancestors in ancient Israel, they awaited the fulfillment of promises even more ancient than those that we live in now, the promises that were fulfilled on that night in Bethlehem. 
And so rewind in your mind, if you will, back until the birth of Jesus. And then rewind even further to the centuries that preceded that and bring to mind the story of Israel. Let me help you out. Israel was a nation that had descended from a single family. And they believed, according to Genesis chapter 12, that God had promised to make the descendants of that single family into a great nation that he would use to bring his salvation to the entire world. He made a covenant with them, and as part of his covenant with Israel, God had instructed that nation to remain faithful to him and to not turn to the false gods of the pagan nations that surrounded them. And though God is always faithful, Israel was not. Through the centuries, he removed his blessings and and eventually he removed even his protective hand from his people. And so their lands, their ancestral homelands were conquered and, and their people were oppressed and things got very, very bad. And According to history, by the 6th or 7th century BC, the prevailing theological question in Israel was whether or not God had abandoned his people entirely. Has God just left us? Has God given up on us? That was the prevailing theological question among the people of Israel. And if so, I mean, think of the implications of that. What would come next? If God has given up on us, What's next? The sin of the people was overwhelming and they could not save themselves. Was there any hope? Was there any hope? And so that's the context into which we hear God by, by, by way of the prophets begin to answer that question. God raised up generations of prophets, prophets who spoke not in foretelling the future, but who spoke on God's behalf. And unfortunately, the preponderance of the prophet's testimony was that things were actually going to get much, much worse. But then they said things would get better. Things are going to get worse before they get better. Has God abandoned us? Not entirely, but we're in for a rough haul, people. That's what the ancient prophets said. They spoke often, though, about a day that for them was yet to come, a day that they sometimes referred to as the day of the Lord. It was an era when God would ultimately do a new thing among his people. There would be a new covenant, a new framework for their arrangement their relationship with God, a time when God would take action on a scope that they had never, ever seen before. And so the people hearing that word asked the logical question. They said, how will we know when this is going to happen? How will we know that that's what's going on? I mean, how can we be sure that the time has arrived? And the prophet said, you're going to know because you're going to witness an unprecedented outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That's how you'll know. You will know that God is on the move when you witness an, out, an unprecedented outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That was the key. God gave his spirit as a marker to point to the fulfillment of his promises. And here's what that looked like. 
by his spirit, God promised restoration. That's what he promised to the people. By his spirit, God promised restoration. Through the prophets, God had told his people that they would be able to recognize that he was finally at work restoring their land, restoring their hearts, establishing a godly kingdom, and making right everything that had gone wrong. They would know this was happening when they began to witness the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, there was a prophet by the name of Joel who lived many hundreds of years before the time of Jesus. But he's one of several that spoke to this. He was saying, you will know that God is on the move, that God is restoring your land, that God is restoring his relationship with you. You'll know it's happening when you see the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Let me read to you from Joel chapter 2, verse 25 through 32. I believe you'll see these verses on the screen. The prophet Joel, speaking on God's behalf, said, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. You will have plenty to eat until you are full. This is restoration, right? Never again will my people be shamed. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, how's that for the Christmas message, right? And I've noted there, that's just one of many verses that we can read from the Old Testament prophets. I'll leave it to you to go back and look at some of the others I've indicated. But you can see that time and time and time again, the ancient prophets said, a time of restoration is coming. God has promised restoration. And the way you know it's true is by the outpouring of his Holy Spirit by the outpouring of his Holy Spirit over every one of you. You're going to see it on a scale you've never seen it before. Now, for centuries, God had been saying this through the prophets. And so that's what the ancient people of Israel were looking for. They believed that God had promised restoration. So they were looking for the signs. They were looking for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit as an indication that that promised work of restoration had begun. And so what happens at the Christmas story? Well, I think among the four gospel authors, Luke really does the best job of helping us to understand. If we read in Luke chapter 1, the the story of the days leading up to the birth of Jesus, and I'm not going to read word for word here. I'll leave it to you to do that. But you know what Luke tells us about the days leading up to the birth of Jesus? He says, well, the first thing you have to understand is that this angel came to a teenage girl. A teenage girl. An unwed teenage girl. And he said, guess what? (laughs) You're going to have some fun. You're pregnant. And Mary says, how can this be? And and what, what does the angel say? The Holy Spirit has come upon you. A little single, unmarried, unwed, virgin, teenage girl. But the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then Luke says, and meanwhile, while all this is going on, down the road away, she's got some extended family. Her uncle happens to be a priest, and his wife is too old to have a baby, but there's a promise there 
about a miraculous birth as well. And the same question is raised, how is this going to happen? And, well, it doesn't really matter how Elizabeth ends up pregnant. And Luke tells us, and oh, by the way, while Elizabeth, this older woman, is experiencing this miraculous pregnancy, she's filled with the Holy Spirit. Isn't that odd? And meanwhile, not only is Elizabeth filled with the Holy Spirit, Luke says the baby in her womb, the, the, the little baby who would become big name in John, the baby is filled with this. Now, you want to talk about your old men will prophesy, your young men will see visions. How about fetuses? I mean, does that qualify as something different, something we haven't seen before? But Luke says, you guys, you don't even understand. The fetus was filled with the Holy Spirit. And while that was happening, the father of the baby, who was on duty doing his priestly duties, he gets filled with the Holy Spirit. It's like Oprah is in charge here. And you get the Holy Spirit, and you get the Holy Spirit, and you, and you, and you. And Luke is saying, don't you see what's going on here? People that we'd never guess. People that we'd never even imagine. People that had nothing to do with anything. These weren't kings. These weren't heroes. These weren't the judges of the days of old. These were people going through a difficult time. They were too old to matter. They were too young to matter. They were too fetal to matter. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And the readers of that gospel go, huh. This is significant. The yearning and the longing that God's people had prior to the first Christmas wasn't just a yearning for the appearance of Jesus. Follow me there. I mean, put, put your like, time travel hat on. They didn't know who Jesus was. We sang this morning, come Lord Jesus, come. They weren't singing, come Lord Jesus. They, Jesus, who's Jesus? They don't know who that is, right? They weren't singing, come Lord Jesus. They were singing, come Holy Spirit. They were longing, they were awaiting, they were looking for the prophetic moment in time when the outpouring of the Holy Spirit would come in a way that they could not possibly have managed, imagined because that was the moment, according to the prophets, when they would know, that they would know, that they would know that God was finally restoring his created order. It was going to happen through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But the promise of God was much more specific, as many of you know, than just kind of this generalized unleashing of the Holy Spirit. In addition to the infilling of, of men and women, young and old, the prophets spoke of a very, very specific individual who would be filled by the Holy Spirit in a unique way. By his spirit, God promised a Messiah. A Messiah. I want to talk just for a moment about that word Messiah. We sometimes get that a little bit confused because we know it's a church word. We know it refers to Jesus. The word Messiah actually has no connotation whatsoever of being divine. You know, we say Messiah, well, that means God's son. Well, actually not. The word Messiah is an ancient Hebrew word. It just means the anointed one. And so someone, as you can imagine in those days, you know enough Bible stories to know that they were really into anointing people, weren't they? Right? They anointed kings. They anointed prophets. Anointing was a symbol that God's spirit had been poured out upon an individual. It was kind of a way of commissioning them to a particular task. And so we have literal anointings. 
But throughout scripture, we also have this idea that sometimes people, even if they never knelt down and we poured oil on them, even if that never happened, there's this kind of acknowledgement that they have been anointed for a particular purpose. And the word that they would use for that is Messiah. So it was someone who was dedicated to a specific calling or purpose. And by his spirit, God had promised that there would be a Messiah. He would promise that there would be an individual who was anointed, kind of set aside, consecrated for a specific calling, a specific purpose. The words of the prophets pointed towards this individual. They said there's going to be a spirit-filled, anointed servant of God. I give you as one example, Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. The prophet Isaiah says this, hundreds of years before the appearance of Jesus, he writes, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. That's the, the family tree, the lineage of Jesus. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. As you can see, that's one of just many, many Old Testament prophecies saying, when you're looking for this thing to happen, this, this longing to be fulfilled, here's what you need to be looking for. Look for a Messiah and you'll know that the Messiah is the Messiah when you see someone on whom Rests the Spirit of God in a way you haven't seen before. In a way you haven't seen before. See, in Israel's past, there had been men and women raised up and anointed by God to fulfill a particular purpose. The book of Exodus tells the story of a man named Bezalel, who was an artisan who got the job of foreman on the construction of the tabernacle. Exodus chapter 31 says, I have filled him with the spirit of God. The book of Joshua, I'm sorry, the book of Deuteronomy tells us the story of Joshua. You know, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Deuteronomy tells us in chapter 34, Joshua, son of Nun, was filled by the spirit. That was part of his anointing for a very particular job, for a very particular role. The book of Judges tells us of, of Samson. Remember Samson? You know, the strong man? Uh, Judges chapter 15 tells us the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon Samson. So Israel had this context in their history. They were well familiar with the idea that if God's going to raise up uh, an anointed leader for a particular purpose, uh, in some cases it will become apparent that that leader has been filled with the Holy Spirit, anointed by the Holy Spirit. But the prophets are saying, oh, you ain't seen nothing yet. You ain't seen nothing yet. The prophets that we're reading from today, they foretold of a different kind of spirit-filled Messiah. One who would have the Holy Spirit in unprecedented measure. Whose life would be punctuated by powerful supernatural miracles made possible by this unparalleled power of the Holy Spirit. Our spiritual ancestors yearned to see the fulfillment of God's promise that one day he would set things right. Things in the world that had gone terribly, terribly wrong. It was a promise of restoration. But they believed, according to God's word, that that restoration, the one they longed for, would come by way of a particular individual. A Messiah. One that they could very reasonably call their Savior. And so they awaited for their Messiah. Their prayers echoed 
with cries that said, come, Messiah, come. Come, Messiah, come. There was a longing in the hearts of our ancestors saying, come, Messiah, come. What we live in is not right. Come, Messiah, come. What we feel and what we experience is not right. Come, Messiah, come. As they would go through seasons of repentance, they would acknowledge before God, what we have received, we are due. We are guilty. We are guilty. We lay our sin bare before you. We get it. It's our sin that has been the problem. But even so, in faith, we cry out, come, Messiah, come. Because it can't be fixed until he appears. But they weren't seeking a Messiah who would be dynamic in in his own, in his human strength. Well, they had seen that before. There had been heroes that had been raised up and uh, people who had tried to restore God's promises without God's specific anointing. Just 150 years or so before Jesus, a man by the name of Judah Maccabee had done so. And he'd had some pretty amazing success, unlikely success. He'd had some great exploits. We celebrate them with the holiday Hanukkah now. But Judah Maccabee was ultimately unsuccessful. He had fallen before the Roman invaders and his movement had died out. He was a great leader, but he was not the Holy Spirit-filled Messiah that God's people had been waiting for. And so they continued to cry, come, Messiah, come. God had promised a Messiah. And according to the prophets, the way the people would be able to tell him apart from the crowds of Judah Maccabees and everybody else was that the true Messiah would operate only in the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the people continued to watch and wait. When I was 10 years old or so, my mom took a trip to California to visit her brother who lived there. She went alone by the plane. I was an only child at the time, so that meant dad and I lived the bachelor life for about a week. Come, Messiah, come. (laughs) When the week was over, we went to the airport to pick mom up. I remember that trip vividly. We had not traveled by plane much, and so going to the airport was kind of an adventure for me. Now, for the youngins in the room, let me quickly explain to you that back in those days, when we picked somebody up from the airport, there was no security line, there was no TSA. You just went and parked your car, walked into the airport, and you walked all the way to the gate, and you watched them get off the plane and come down the jetway, and you got to meet them right there at the gate. And so that's what Dad and I did. And I remember as 10 years old walking through this airport, thinking, oh my goodness, how are we going to find her? <laughs> you know, in, in a child's mind, you go to the airport and the, air, the airplane pulls up and mommy gets up and gets into the car and you're all good, right? And then O'Hare. And you're like, oh, this was not what I had in mind. <laughs> this is bigger than I expected. And it turns out, you'll be surprised to know this, it turns out my mother was not the only one traveling by airplane that particular day. <laughs> There were thousands of other people in this airport. Her airplane was not the only one that flew that day. There were hundreds of other airplanes there. How are we going to find her? And I remember walking through that airport with 
my dad, and the first thing that he did was pointed, this is another like from the Wayback Machine thing, because again, for the young ones in the room, we didn't have cell phones. There were no apps to tell us where to go, right? Can, can I get an amen? amen? An amen, yes, from the crowd. That's you remember, back when things were hard and we walked to school uphill both ways, right? So here we are in the airport, and I'm just like, oh my goodness, like how do you even know which hallway to go down? And my dad shows me there's a sign. Do you remember the signs that list all the incoming flights? We go down and we look, she was flying from LAX, and we look for the flight number, and the sign, he said, look to the sign. The sign will tell you which hallway we need to go down, which terminal we need to find, and which gate we need to go when we get there. Okay, so good thing we've got dad, he looks at the sign. He goes, so we walk and walk and walk and walk and walk, but we get to the terminal where she is, and again, through the eyes of a 10-year-old, I'm looking around going, there's planes landing everywhere, people coming in from the left, coming in from the right. How will we find mom in this crowd of people? Parenthetically, those of you that know my mom know that she was probably thinking the very same thing. Uh, but we were there, how are we gonna know? How are we gonna know? How are we gonna know? Dad points me to another sign. He says, by each gate, there's a sign that tells you exactly which plane is arriving at that gate. So we, we know we're going to gate you know, B11 or C16 or whatever it is, but even so, how can we be sure when we get there? Well, when we get there, look at the sign. Look at the sign, and it'll say right there, flight 1542 coming in from LAX due to land at 706, or whatever it says. And we looked, and we looked, and we looked, and we saw the sign, and we saw the sign. And so we knew when we had found the right place, we knew this is the place, just sit and wait in it. Just sit and wait, and eventually that plane landed in a taxi, uh, and, and mom got off, and we had our fun little reunion there, and I never had to eat frozen fish sticks again. <laughs> Yeah, praise the Lord. I forget why I was telling you that. We talked about what it was like for ancient Israel. Waiting, seeking. Where's the promised one going to show up? When is the time? How do we know that the time is right? How do we know that the place is right? How do we know the individual is right? That's what it was like for them. You feel like you've had a pretty good history lesson today? All right, Dan, what's the point? Pastor Marianne did this in like 20 minutes. Why are you still yakking? <laughs> Here it is. In ancient time, God used his Holy Spirit as the guarantee of his promise. That's the point, right? You could know that God's word was good. It was like the sign in the airport that said, this is the right spot. This is the one you're looking for. You could know that God's word was good and you could identify when and how and where he was moving, where he was showing up. You could rest assured in the promises of God simply by knowing how to read the signs, recognizing the work of the Holy Spirit. Here's why all that matters. By his spirit, God's promises still stand. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. By understanding our story in centuries past, some of the confusion of today's life begins to fall into place. The clouds begin to dissipate. Things become a bit more clear. That's my prayer for you today because nothing has changed. By his spirit, God's promises still 
stand. Our God is still in the promise making business. Do you know that? Our God is still in the promise making business and he is still using his Holy Spirit as the means of guaranteeing those promises. Let me read to you from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians chapter one, beginning in verse 20. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ Jesus. Amen? Now, what do we have there? We have the advantage of being able to look back in the rearview mirror and call the Messiah by name. Right? Same Messiah that the ancients were looking for. They just didn't know who he was. They didn't know what his name was going to be. They didn't know where he was. They didn't know anything. But here we are in the, in the future to them. We have the advantage along with the Apostle Paul of being able to look back and say, I know that his promises were yes because I know Jesus. No matter how many promises of God, keep them coming, Lord. Keep them coming, Lord. Keep them coming, Lord. No matter how many promises of God we hear, they are yes in our Messiah, Lord Jesus. But watch this. How do we know that we know? Oh, here's how we know that we know God anointed us. Do you remember that word, Mike? Anointed? Yeah, he remembers. He said it. God anointed us. God set his seal of ownership on us. And he put... I'm so excited. (laughs) He put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come by his promise, by his spirit, God's promises still stand. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. God's saying to his people, nothing, I mean, we're a new covenant people. (laughs) Praise the Lord. That's wonderful. Our way of understanding and relating to our God is, is vastly more robust than Isaiah and Joel and the ancients could have even hoped for. The advantage is all ours. But God has not changed. He says, oh yeah, I I still make promises. I still make promises. And yeah, it all hinges on your Messiah, on your Savior, Lord Jesus. But you want to know that my promises are true? You want to know where to find them, where to look for them? You You want that guarantee? Look out for my spirit. Look out for my Holy Spirit who dwells within you. Because he's the one that testifies. He's the one that guarantees what is to come. So what's to come? What's to come? Do you remember I told you nothing's, nothing's changed? Well, here's what's to come. It's the advent of our Messiah. The arrival of Lord Jesus Christ, that's what's to come. Just as it was still to come for for Joel and Isaiah and and priest Zechariah and all the guys we talked about in the beginning of this, this message. Just as it was just to come, still to come for them, his first advent. What's still to come for us? His second. It's the promised restoration of the kingdom of God. That's still to come. It's the destruction and the elimination of evil. It's the establishment of a kingdom where God is enthroned and his people live in eternal peace and security. 
It's to come. And the guarantee on that promise is the Holy Spirit in you. Now today, you might be standing on some other, maybe more specific, precise promises of God. Promises that bear a particular significance in your life. Maybe you're standing on a promise for healing in your body, or strength in your mind, or rest when you're weary. Protection from your enemies, victory over temptation. We could go on and on, whatever you've got here. I believe that you can experience the fulfillment of each and every one of those things in this life. Absolutely. If you're seeking Uh, the fulfillment of those promises today, then I stand with you as you do so. But always remember as you do so that until Jesus appears, even the victories we win with the Lord are only temporary. But one day, right? But one day, we shall behold him. One day, we shall behold him. And when we do, Every disease will be healed. Every mind will be transformed. Every soul will find rest. Every enemy will be scattered and every chain will be broken forever. How do we know? Come on, preacher. How can you be so certain? How do we know? By the Spirit who promises. By the Holy Spirit who fills us. Who indwells us who never stops testifying that every word of God is faithful and true by the Spirit who promises. And so as we approach the Christmas season, we remember his first advent. That's why we've got the nativity scenes out, right? But we do so as we look forward to his second And as a spirit-filled people who still await the fulfillment of the promises of a faithful God, our hearts resonate with the same cry that emanated from the souls of our forefathers. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. I want to invite you to stand.